Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Now, we are cranking along with this season, and my travel has actually started to pick up quite a bit. And I was looking back thinking like, man, it, we are almost at the end of this season, and I, I, I can't believe it. I'm really proud of what we did. I'm glad that you were able to meet some of the contributors of the Firetime magazine. And when we start again next season, at, at some point next season, I'm going to make sure to introduce you to the rest of them. But today's conversation is one that I want to jump to real quick because this is really important. So Our guest today is named Robert Bryce, and he is somebody who is an author, he's a filmmaker, and he is a savant when it comes to understanding the way that power and energy work. So I was first put in touch with Robert's work back in February. He wrote a piece for Forbes magazine where the title was, This Blizzard Exposes the Perils of Attempting to Electrify Everything. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, all right, I got to read this article. So I read it, and the article was tremendous. It was basically about how we we simply can't electrify everything in the country. Like people that want to lower carbon output and and uh, you know put together these like nice sounding political agendas of of we're going to electrify and we're going to get rid of carbon. Well, the the truth is that our grid actually couldn't even handle that. Number one, but when it comes to providing power, power not only needs to be clean, but it needs to be reliable. You have to have power that can be turned on. And when you move to fully, quote unquote, renewable sources of energy, like wind and solar, it's great when they're working, but they only work a third of the time and they can only be turned down and off. They can't be turned on. So that was my first contact with Robert. And and as I started researching his work, I found out this guy's written like four or five books. He has a podcast that's called the Power Hungry Podcast. And as I've started listening to this podcast, I've learned, I mean, how little I know about the the scope of energy consumption in our country. And, and this is someone that is incredibly informed and he has written extensively on it. Now, when I first found that he had a podcast called The Power Hungry Podcast, I listened to an episode that came out on March 7th, 2021, and the episode is called John Harpole, President of Mercator Energy on the Texas Blackouts and Why Natural Gas is a Strategic Fuel. And I I would encourage you to go listen to this episode. We're going to link to it in the show notes. But if you listen to this, you're going to start to see the complexity of what is involved in delivering power and energy to people's homes. Now, the reason this is such a big deal, I was recently in Kentucky and I had people asking me like, so what is going on with this like potential like natural gas ban in different parts of the country? And and I mentioned like I've personally probably testified six or seven times in like the last eight months about this to different groups. And this issue of natural gas being attacked is not going away. I don't care where you live. It is not going away. And there is a very real possibility that 
natural gas gets regulated out of a lot of areas, which I don't think is the right move. And I know our industry doesn't think is the right move. So we got to get informed about it. And Robert Bryce is somebody that is leading the charge in this conversation. So I'm going to jump out of the way here. We will circle back at the end to talk about this. But for now, get out a pen and paper. You're going to need it for this episode. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Robert Bryce. Joining me from Austin, Texas is Robert Bryce. Robert, this is a long intro, but I want to read the whole thing. You are the host of the Power Hungry podcast, an author and a journalist that's been writing about energy, politics, and the environment for more than 30 years. You've published six books and have covered numerous topics, including Enron's bankruptcy, the rise of Texas, corn, ethanol, digital drilling rigs, renewables, batteries, nuclear energy, and the future of the electric grid. You're a visiting fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, and your articles have appeared everywhere. I'm looking at this list. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, New York Post, Sydney Morning Herald, Forbes. You're an author. You have a full-length documentary called Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, And you're married to Lauren, who's an art teacher, photographer, and master potter. It sounds like you have a lot going on. (laughs) It does sound like I've been busy. (laughs) Maybe I need to take some time off, Tim. I don't. I know, man. You got to get a life. (laughs) Hey, seriously though, Robert, I'm so excited to have you on. I I I stumbled across your content a few months ago, back in February, when you wrote an article that's called "This Blizzard Exposes the Perils of Attempting to Electrify Everything." And, and, and that was kind of the rabbit hole I went down where I started realizing that, man, you are someone that really knows what's going on when it comes to the issue of power and electrification and energy. And I felt like you, you would just be an incredible voice for us to, to learn from. And, and I'm excited for this conversation. Well, don't get your hopes up too high, Tim. Let's, let's keep it real here. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, thank you. That's a gracious introduction. And, and I will tell you that being blacked out here in Austin in February, uh, because of the blizzard really did, I think the right word is radicalize me in terms of my thinking about these issues of energy and power and access and affordability, um, because it was snowing sideways. And we were lucky that we had a natural gas connection and we were lucky that we had a fireplace. And in, in, I'd been thinking about this electrify everything stuff and had drafted an article that I you know, had not had time to publish. And then I woke up on the morning of February 15th our house didn't have any power and I had a full, I fully charged my battery and the night before I thought, Oh, I was going to post this the night before because I knew the blizzard was happening. And then the power went out. So I finished the article using my battery power on my computer, put my phone, my iPhone on it as a hotspot and then uploaded it that way. But it was uh, this idea that we're going to quit combustion, which is the, the, the what the, the most uh, some of the, the, the most prominent environmentalists in America, and I'm going to name names, Bill McKibben wrote this in, in the New Yorker a few weeks ago. In fact, it was in January before the blizzard said, we have to quit burning things. And this is the, this is the mantra now of the most extreme climate activists in America, that we're just going to give up combustion. We're going to stop burning things and we're going to run on a completely solid state in society and everything's going to be electric. And I think it, 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 it's a deeply dangerous idea, this idea that we're going to quit combustion and that we're going to depend solely on the grid, the electric grid, it, it's not just wrongheaded, it's dangerous. And it's dangerous because it will mean that in, in extreme weather events that people will die because the electric grid will fail just like it did here in Texas in February. Well, I, I know it's it's horrible to think about what what you know, people had to go through during that time. We, we have listeners all over the country. Can you, can you give us just a, a, a quick 
explanation of what exactly happened in in Texas, what led up to it, and and why was it such a problem? Well, uh, you know, catastrophes like this never have one single cause, right? So starting out as Captain Obvious here, it was really cold for a very long time. So here in Austin, we had sub-zero, sub-freezing temperatures, sub-zero if you're counting in Celsius, but sure. So sub-freezing temperatures for six days in a row, which was a, a record for that extent. Now we've had cold spells before, and we've had hot spells where we've had blackouts that were brief, rolling blackouts. But what happened here was, uh, it, and I'm, you know, I, I'm a longtime critic of the wind industry, and, and proudly so. But what happened in Texas was that in the years prior to the blackout, we retired dozens of gigawatts of coal and built dozens of gigawatts of wind. Well, at 2 a.m. on February 15th, when the blackouts really started, all that wind capacity was effectively worth nothing. So Texas spent 66 there were $66 billion spent in Texas on renewables in the years prior to the blackout. And all of that investment was essentially worth nothing when the grid was on the verge of failure. Now, also to be clear, there was a lot of gas fire generation that failed. They were gas that froze off. They had pipelines that didn't deliver enough gas. So that was a problem as well. And then there were fundamental problems with the management of the grid in that ERCOT, the regional grid operator, uh, didn't uh, uh, have a clear understanding of where which areas should be shut off. There were problems in the gas grid, and that the uh, some of the gas suppliers hadn't filled out their the the, the notices to to let ERCOT know that they're on a their critical infrastructure shouldn't be shut off. So again, a, a, a number of connected and interconnected issues that illustrate the one the fragility of the electric grid. But I think for the, you know, for, you know, your, your people and the, you know, the people that are in the business of selling machines that, that are depend on, on burning things on combustion, to me, it highlighted the danger of trying to electrify everything that, that we need fuel diversity and fuel diversity provides energy security. Well, I was reading your, your most recent article in Forbes and you quoted Winston Churchill, who said safety and certainty lion variety and variety alone and there's a lot of wisdom in that we understand that in different you know areas of our lives but in this in this talk of electrification no one seems to be to be at least thinking that way at the national level I, i'd love to hear you talk about like you know you're not you're not against clean air like i would say of everything i've researched of yours like you're for like clean energy and, and clean air and, and and trying to cut our carbon our carbon footprint but how can we do that responsibly and why isn't electrifying everything actually responsible? Well, so to be clear, I, I, I seldom quote Churchill, um, but, and, and that quote was from, I believe from 1913 when Churchill yep. was the, uh, the Lord of the Admiralty and the, and the British Navy was, was converting their ships from coal to oil. So he was talking about oil at that point and, and talking about the need to, for, for Britain to have diverse supplies of oil so that their warships would be able to refuel when, where and when they needed and wouldn't have to depend on certain collieries for, for refueling. But I think that you know, the, 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 the broad issue around this electrify everything is that people have to understand just how much money and influence is behind these groups that are pushing these ideas. Um, the Rocky Mountain Institute is one of the foremost proponents of this electrify everything push. They got, if memory serves, $10 million from the Bezos Earth Fund. The Natural Resources Defense Council got $100 million. So the, the amount of money that is pushing this messaging is enormous. And 
it's kind of interesting to think about it because I've been writing about the energy business for over 30 years now. And for a long time, really decades, the oil and gas industry and the, you know, the traditional industry, the incumbents, they had an advantage in terms of money and arguably an advantage in terms of the media. I think that's completely flipped now. I think that there's just no question that the climate activists have the sympathy of the media and they have far more money than the traditional, than the incumbent uh, industries. And you have the wind and solar industries, which are collecting tens of billions of dollars in, in federal tax incentives, and they want to keep that going. So they're, you know, providing uh, media support and, and, and our, and our allies with these climate activists who are saying, Oh, well, burning everything, you know, we can't burn anything. We need to get rid of that. And, and they also have, frankly, you know, allies in some of the electric utilities who see this as another way to increase their sales. So the, 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 the industries that are around that depend on, on burning hydrocarbons and burning solid fuels are, are, on, are being backfooted. There's just no doubt about it. Yeah, it, it's tough. And, and I feel like one of the things that we have to do as an industry is we have to take responsibility for where we are and actually stand up to be part of the solution. One of the things I found is I, I've done a, a fair amount of lobbying. I was just doing some lobbying earlier today is that when, when you go to somebody that believes they're saving the world, you cannot say, stop saving the world. What you have to do is you have to be able to come alongside them and say, we can help you save the world, but it might just be a little bit different path. And I think that that's one of the things is it's so easy to be antagonistic in our industry against people who are on the other side. Like I remember times like in the city of Seattle, there was a potential natural gas ban that was that was being passed around. And we, we met with uh, some city council members. And I remember afterwards, someone was so mad. And they're like, this person just, they're, they're not reasonable. And I, I felt like, well, I get that, but they're the person we got to deal with. It's like, it doesn't matter if you think they're reasonable or not. Like we, we better find a way to come alongside of them and, and try to steer the ship versus just say, ah, screw it. And, and you're not, you don't even have a voice at the table. Sure. I mean, you have to play the cards as they're played, you know, you have to play the cards that are in your hand. You don't have another option. And I, the way I've thought about this, Tim, is that in terms of the messaging and I'm not lobbying, I'm just trying to report on what's going on, but I think it comes down to the issues of, of equity and affordability and resilience mm-hmm. and that those are the ones that should resonate across the political spectrum. And I think the affordability is what one is, is, is key because that's not an, it's not a Republican or democratic issue. Sure. It should be a, one that appeals to everyone. And the reality is DOE data that just was published in the federal register just a few weeks ago points out that on a, on a per MMBTU basis, electricity costs four times more than natural gas and two times more than propane. Now, I've had some pushback from the, you know, the usual suspects, the all renewable promoters saying, oh, well, you know, those are, those are you know, you're taking those figures out of, out of context. Well, no, I'm not, in fact, because this is DOE data publishing this. They're yeah. forecasting this day, these prices excuse me, nationwide for this year. And further, when you look at the two biggest items in terms of energy expenditures in the average home in a residential setting, the two biggest energy-related expenditures in the home are for space heating and water heating. Well, so you're going to tell me, oh, well, we'll just electrify those things and we'll use a heat pump. Okay, well, yeah, heat pump maybe. But the colder it gets, the the worse heat pumps behave. They're very inefficient when in in sub-freezing temperature. So that to me means, well, then you need to make sure that you keep energy affordable for low and middle income people. And that means combustion. That means propane. It means natural gas. 
a point that was made to me by Meredith Angwin, who's a friend of mine and wrote a great book called Shorting the Grid. She said, one of the things that people forget about heat pumps is that they're not that cozy and that one of the, the keys about a fireplace, one of the things that's key about combustion is that radiant energy, that yep. radiant heat. And she put it very well. She said, that's very satisfying to us humans, that we like that radiant heat. It's very satisfying. It's cozy. And she said, heat pump buildings, I've been in them. I used to, I, I used to own a house and had a heat pump. I hated it. It was terrible sure. for heating. I wanted that resistance heater working. I wanted the fireplace working. I wanted that radiant energy because it was felt good. I mean, it was just yeah. very satisfying. Nobody cozies up to their heat pump. They cozy up to the fireplace. They cozy up to the heart. They cozy up to things that burn. Totally. I mean, yeah, we talk about that a lot, that, that radiant heaters heat objects, not air, where a heat pump heats air. It doesn't, it doesn't make your couch warm. Like You actually sit down on the couch and it wraps you up like a blanket. Now, one of the things that you've talked about a lot is how, how dangerous electrification is for, for low-income folks. Could you give an example about like what are, what are people in Texas having to deal with now in the aftermath of this? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because there was a study that was just published <clears throat> last month in, in March by the Texas Energy Poverty Research Institute, uh, which is based here in Austin. And I interviewed the, the executive director and had her on the podcast, you know, on the Power Hungry podcast a few days ago. And we talked about the results of the survey. And one of the things that really jumped out was that they interviewed about, or the survey they did was of nearly a thousand people, 953, if I remember correctly, 75% of the people who responded lost electric power. Only 25% roughly lost natural gas. So you could say, well, gas was three times more dependable. Well, okay. You can think of it that way. But the fact is that that fuel diversity, and they, they quoted one person who said, yeah, we, we kept the oven going. Because we knew we were, you know, there's a risk of carbon dioxide, but we, it kept us warm. Yeah. And that was my experience in my house where we have an electric oven, but we have a gas cooked, uh, gas cooktop, a gas range. So we put gas, you know, we put water, uh, you know, big pots of water and, and boiled water, or, you know, steam coming off the, the, made the house much more livable, despite the fact that we didn't have, uh, you know, our furnace wasn't working. It was a gas, you know, forced air furnace. Uh, was gas fired, but nevertheless, we had hot food, we had hot water, yeah. we had hot coffee. We, you know, these were things we could do that made our house much more livable during the the time of the blackout, and that was key as well. I, you know, we're not low income. I'm, you know, we, you know, I'm, not, I don't consider myself rich, but you know, we we did okay. Yeah. We were able to stay in our house because we had fuel diversity. We had a big stack of firewood and a nice fireplace and we had a gas range and a gas water heater. And those were the differences between that made our experience of the blizzard tolerable. It wasn't fun, yeah. but it was tolerable. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear that because it's a perspective that isn't, isn't common. One thing I'd, I'd love to hear you explain. I, I listened to your episode of the podcast. This was a few episodes back and it was when you were interviewing John Harple, the president of a, uh, Mercator Energy. And one thing that you explained that I had never even thought about was you talked about the way that natural gas is purchased day to day to day. And essentially, I'd love if you could give us just a quick explanation of, of the situation that was happening in Texas when they, they had all these people that were without power, they needed to restore power. Um, how they essentially inflated prices, the price that they were paying for gas, and 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 it's going to stick a lot of low income people with a with a terrible bill. I, again, I don't know this nearly as well as you do, but can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Well, I mean, first, I'm, what I can speak from 
personal experiences in our game, our natural gas bill for the month after the, the month of the blizzard was only like $60. I mean, it wasn't a big yeah. number. And so I don't know of many, I don't know of any myself, any residential customers who got stuck with big natural gas bills. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be the electric folks. Some big electricity generators got stuck with big natural gas bills. And so CPS energy, which is the San Antonio uh, municipal utility, they're the biggest electric and gas publicly owned uh, electric electricity and gas utility in the country. They have several lawsuits. I, I, I don't know, it's more than a dozen. I think it was, it was in the wall street journal yesterday, but that they filed several lawsuits against their gas suppliers because what happened in the, in the natural gas market was that on the spot market, you know, a lot of companies that are entities that didn't have uh, fixed price contracts, long-term contracts were forced to buy uh, gas on the spot market and they paid some very, very high prices. And now this is all in litigation and it's going to drag on for a long time. But, you know, this was one of the, it wasn't a direct reason why the electricity costs were so high, but it was a, a related issue that that happened and that is now i think the litigation on this is going to last for years and it's going to be nasty yeah we'll get back to our conversation with robert bryce in just one minute Hey, while I'm recording this episode today, I just got back from a trip to Kentucky last week where I spent some time with a group of dealers discussing Wi-Fi. Now, if you haven't heard about it yet, I'm telling you it's a game changer and you got to get on the waiting list. So Wi-Fi is a software product for our industry that does three things. Number one, it provides you the ability to write up customized estimates instantaneously. So that giant stack of bids on your desk that's taking you forever, you're having to come in late to work on it, it's gone. I mean, imagine if each of those took about 45 seconds a piece to do. The second thing Wi-Fi does is it provides training tools for new team members to where salespeople understand the right questions to ask. They understand which fireplaces will work for certain kinds of situations, and it allows you to not have to micromanage new salespeople, and you can actually empower your team members to be more effective quicker than ever. The last thing Wi-Fi does is it provides you a CRM to manage your sales team. So imagine if you could look at a dashboard every single day that showed you how many dollars are in your company's backlog. What if it showed you your sales reports by salesperson of their close rates and how many follow-ups they did? It's a simple way to manage your book of business. And, and I've seen this transform team members from people that, that you know, go from $350,000 one year in sales all the way up to over a million just a couple years later. So Wi-Fi is a software tool that does all this. Now, if you want to sign up, you can go to wifire.com. That's W-H-Y-F-I-R-E.com. But I'll tell you, there's a waiting list. So to get on that list and be set up with Wi-Fi as soon as possible, you can go to wifire.com today. One of the things that you talked about, you said that you're not a fan of wind, and I think that, you know, especially being out here in the Pacific Northwest, wind and solar is super popular right now. And one of the things that, that I heard you say that's difficult with, with wind and solar is that you can only turn it down and off. And that's a really big deal. And I don't think people, like, I don't think people think about that very often. Can you talk about the, some of the danger of relying on a heat source that you can only turn down and off? Well, I mean, I'd simplify it a little bit in that what do we want from our, our energy systems? Well, we want them, our energy networks, we want 100% availability. We want it to be there and ready to go anytime we're, you know, we're, we're ready to go. I mean, imagine you have a taxi cab company. I've used this example a lot of times. And one 
you can only run 30% of the time and you can't be exactly sure when that 30% of the time is going to be. Well, you have customers and you are a limousine service and you have to be able to pick them up and deliver them to where they want to go. Well, you then you can't just rely on the one car that's powered by wind or solar because it only works 30% of the time and you're not exactly sure when that's going to be. Then you have to have another car. So that requirement for a a 100% backup increases the cost to the user. And we've heard over and over and over ad nauseum from the wind and solar lobbies, oh, these are getting cheaper and they're cheaper than traditional sources and so on. I said, well, that's fine, except you're not counting the cost of keeping that extra car uh, available. So what the result has been is that a lot of these states that have seen big increases in renewables uh, and, and, and renewable electricity have also seen big increases in electricity prices. Why? Well, because what I just said, you've got, you've got all these legacy investments that you have to keep around. You can't just turn them off. So this, this idea that that's pervasive among the climate change activists is that we can run the world solely on renewables. Well, it just ignores that intermittency problem, but moreover, it ignores the land use issues and some of these other things. So uh, land use issues in particular, because I'm, I'm, I'm issuing a report on that very issue. But I think that the importance, again, <clears throat> to bring it back to what you know, your, your people care about, it's fuel diversity. And it's not just natural gas. It's propane. Yeah. Because this is a highly reliable fuel used throughout rural America. And it doesn't, it doesn't degrade over time. It can be used in a generator, used in home heating, used in home, uh, water heating. It's a very versatile fuel. So we need to maintain, to assure energy security, we have to keep fuel diversity. And that means more than one network with the overhead grid, the surface grid, the underground grid, all of them are key to energy security. It's so good. And, and it makes me think, too, about the other fuel types in our industry. Like I'm thinking about wood burning and pellet, for instance. So, you know, wood burning is one that, that gets a bad rap in a lot of places. But we've tried to work hand in hand with the EPA on, on fair regulation. And we've seen just this amazing technology where, you know, 30, 40 years ago, wood stoves were pumping 60 to 80 grams of particulate pollution every hour into the atmosphere. And, and today, EPA regulation is that they have to be under two and a half. So, like massive massive increase in in the air quality and but what's hard is that is that there is a cost with that and i think that it's it's easy in today's world to have uh kind of like black and white you know soundbite political campaigns it's really hard to, to to speak in a nuanced way about how you know the reality is we we want to lower our carbon footprint we want to have clean air but we also have to realize that we got to keep people alive and, and, and there, and there's some folks that man, like the wood stove is all they've got. I've, I've literally been in houses where, where, you know, super low income homes, right. Where the wood stove is everything. Cause they're not paying a power bill. They're finding whatever they can to, to burn inside of that. Um, I wanted to ask you, cause, cause the, the thing that I've been understanding is I've started to follow more of your content and listen to the power hungry podcast is that, you know, everything you're talking about is very nuanced and it takes, it takes some understanding that I'm even like struggling to, to try and understand. And I'm having to listen to stuff and read articles again and again. Has it been hard where like things are so black and white today to kind of be talking from a viewpoint that maybe isn't as, as, as politically popular, but is also just very, very nuanced in the way that it approaches things. Has that been hard? I'm a hard head. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's interesting that you put it those ways and that I, I try not to take this stuff too personally, right? You know, because it, it you could get too wrapped up in it and, and that's a danger. 
I try to make sure that every I'm, my numbers are documented, my facts are clear, and this is an emotional topic. And there are a lot of absolutists in this are in these discussions, right? That there's only one way, and it has to be solar and wind, and it has to be all renewable, no nuclear. Yeah, I'm adamantly pro nuclear. In my view, if you're anti-carbon dioxide and anti-nuclear, you're pro-blackout. Well, I'm anti-blackout. I'm super anti-blackout. But I, I, the only way I know to a, a, approach these issues is just, you know, I, I, I get asked all the time, well, how do we convince people? How do we? I said, pack a lunch. You know, pack a lunch. This is not going to be, this is not an easy discussion. There's not, you know, you've got, it's 40, 40, and 20. You may be able to influence that 20 in the middle, then you've got 40 on one side and 40% on the other. But it's hard. It's just damn hard. And you've got to, it's, you just got to stay with it. There's no secret here. And that's what I just have decided in my career is that, you know, my first book was on Enron. It's now 20 years ago. I'm, you know, I, I, there are a lot of people that are smarter than I am to write better than I do. I just, you know, I just decided, well, I'm just going to work hard. And that's, that's the only thing I know to do. And you just, on these issues, especially because they're so emotional, you just have to keep coming back and you just have to, you know, just decide you're going to be persistent and that that's going to win the day. Yeah, that's good. I like that idea of packing a lunch because it is it is an issue that it takes a bunch of time and it's not going to go away anytime soon. You have people with you know very strong held opinions, whether whether you know they're legitimate or not, they're they're holding on to them, and and I, I like that. Um, I got to ask though. So I mean, how does somebody get started writing about this? I mean, I feel like it's fair to say like you are an energy nerd, like you get this stuff. How like how does that even start? You know, an acquaintance of mine a long time ago, Marianne Winnick, uh, teaches writing now. She said a long time ago, what you what you write about chooses you, you don't choose it. And so I think there's some truth to that, that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, yeah. I'm from Oklahoma. Tulsa's my hometown. Um, my dad wasn't in the energy business. He was in the insurance business, but he knew a lot of people that were in the energy business. So I grew up, you know, around, you know, energy people and, and, and seeing energy infrastructure, you know, refineries, that was just part of the world then. And as I started in journalism, I realized, wow, this is an amazing industry. And in this industry, the energy business, every other industry depends on it. Every other industry depends on our ability to produce, transmit and use uh, energy. And so the more I followed it, the more intrigued I became. And, you know, I still think I'm, I'm a, you know, energy nerd, energy savant. I kind of like the way that sounds. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm still fascinated by the, you know, all of these issues and I count myself lucky to be able to be involved in them and just decided, well, this is what I'm about and this is what I'm going to do. And, yeah. and so far so good. And, you know, I'm, as I approach my, my geezer years or I've begun my geezer years, this is what I'm, this is what I'm doing. I love it. You know, and I'm, I'm looking at the title of your latest book, A Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations. Man, I'd, I'd love to hear you give us just like five minutes about that because, you know, it, it seems like you're really connecting the dots that like everything is connected. I'll make it in 60 seconds. How about that? Sounds great. So what's the book about? It's about electricity. This is the world's most important and fastest growing form of energy. The book explains why some countries have electricity and some don't. Uh, and this is the key differentiator in the world today. The difference in the world today can be explained by electricity availability. The countries that have it are rich and the countries that don't are poor, full stop. But there are still 3 billion people around the world today 
who use on average less electricity than an average American refrigerator, less than a thousand kilowatt hours per capita per year. So this is the big, big challenge for the 21st century. How do we bring these 3 billion people who are effectively still living in the dark into modernity? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I write uh, about Bitcoin. I write about marijuana. I write about being in Iceland, Lebanon, Puerto Rico, um, and and looked at the the book looks at the world through the lens of electricity. That was uh, 54 seconds. (laughs) I I love it, man. I think, I think it's so fascinating because the issue the issue is 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 bigger than any one of us i mean it makes us think holistically about like the way that our society works we all we all want certain things as far as clean air as far as as far as you know a low carbon footprint but we also need we also need energy you know when we need it and the truth is there's a lot of people in the world that 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 don't have that luxury at all and i think that that especially as a as a real wealthy nation like we have to be the ones to to set the tone for this and to kind of lay out a model and we're so busy fighting over um sound bites not actually getting to the to the root of the issue i think that that's what makes it so difficult um you said that if you're going to actually attack this thing you better pack a lunch because it's going to be a while but getting really practical here so like all around the country we have we have members of our hearth patio and barbecue association that are seeing you know natural gas bans or um wood bans popping up in all these different places so so if you're going into a place that says we're going to electrify everything could you give like maybe like three talking points as, as a starting point to to open up that conversation first i would say you electrify everything and if you do so you're imposing a regressive tax on the poor and the middle class let's be clear at the beginning about what the practical results of your electrify everything push are of your efforts to to ban the use of propane natural gas solid fuels you are imposing a regressive tax on people who can't afford to have you know the, the you know to uh, have uh, all electric appliances and that's that that's an equity issue and it's not it's it's not uh, left right it's up versus down yeah so you're imposing a regressive tax second you're reducing people's ability to have energy security in their homes and that the electric grid is going to fail it will fail it uh, that you only have to look at history to understand that blackouts happen and they happen with pretty frequent regularity and when they do people die 111 people died in texas during winter storm yuri most of them from hypothermia. A bunch of others died because of carbon monoxide poisoning, either from the generator that they were operating or from, uh, from not uh, having an improperly ventilated home. That's a death due to energy poverty. So you have affordability, you have energy security. And then finally, I think you just have the basic human element of we're the fire makers. And this is not my idea. You know, we, we call ourselves homo sapiens. What is that man, the thinker and, and, but really, what, is, what separates humans from all the other species? We can make fire. And because we've been able to make and manage and with ever greater efficiency, to your point about the cleanliness of new fireplaces, we've been in, you know, look at automobile engines, that, you know, how incredibly more advanced the ones that are today yeah. based on combustion than the, than the ones that were in the Model T in 1908. We're the fire makers, and that's what and one of the things that makes us human. And to deny that, and this is a little bit philosophical, or maybe a lot philosophical, to deny that idea we're, that, that we're not going to make fires anymore, we're going to quit burning things, there's something that, to me that smacks not just of an anti-human 
element, but almost a totalitarian kind of approach. No, we know better than you, and we're going to tell you what you are able to do in your own home, even though if you just have a little fire, you know, a little, you know, gas stove or whatever, no, we're going to tell you you can't have that. So, I mean, those are the things off the top of my head, but it's just that the affordability, the energy security, the equity, and and basically, you know, it's harder point to make in a you know in a in front of a city council sure. or whatever about who we are as humans. But I think I think that's part of it as well. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. You know, um, here in the Pacific Northwest, there's a gas utility that's called Northwest Natural, and I, I've spent some time talking with them. There was an article in NPR about a month ago or so that that featured them, and I I thought it was so insightful. So what what they talked about is is they talked about how. They believe that natural gas is a key part of lowering the state's carbon footprint and meeting the state's carbon goals towards, I think it's 2050, when uh, when this when when it, the goal is set to be in place. And and what they've talked about is some of the emerging technologies with natural gas to where in certain areas of Oregon now they have what's called renewable natural gas where they are able to take methane that's just spewing into the atmosphere and turn it into basically a zero carbon natural gas, which is pretty crazy. And obviously there it is more expensive and there's a limited supply of it, but still like amazing emerging technology. And another one is that there's been some work done to convert, and I don't know how this works scientifically, but to convert some of the wind and solar energy into hydrogen and basically infuse the natural gas with hydrogen, basically making a battery for wind and solar, which is incredible. And and the article basically said like, this is the future of natural gas. And like to cut this off right now is so foolish. And, and uh, I don't know. I, I feel like to me, when you, when you think about those technologies, um, that could be the answer for, for being able to harness what wind and solar can provide. You call me a skeptic, Tim. I think of it more this way in terms of the gas grid in that for 200 years, I mean, you look at the history of, of gas grids in cities, which goes back to the early 1800s and with town gas, which was manufactured from coal. And I, I write about it a little bit in, 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 uh, in my new book, A Question of Power. But those gas grids were critical for lighting and they provided an alternative to oil lamps. And, 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 and to, you know, fireplaces for lighting in the home and that this was a big advance. So for 200 years, we humans have seen the natural gas grid as a sign of, of progress and prosperity. And now we're being told, oh, no, 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 no. You can't use that. We're going we're gonna to retire all of that and we're going to go to electricity only. Again, I think that this, 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 that denies the importance of this network, this underground network to our resilience and reliability, but it also ignores the importance of just basic combustion. And so, but back to your point about RNG and hydrogen, the amount of RNG that's being produced is vanishingly small. It is. I mean, vanishingly small. I think it's one, I, I wrote a, I had a long paper about natural gas and natural gas bands that I published last year and last June, um, with the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity here in Austin, I think the amount of natural gas, renewable natural gas being produced is something like one one hundredth of the amount of gas that's now being consumed in the residential sector in the U.S., which is about five TCF a year. Mm. So it's vanishingly small. And can we make more, you know, more RNG out of chicken poop and, you know, garbage and stuff? Yeah, we can, (laughs) but it's going to be still fairly small. Hydrogen, you know, hydrogen is like fusion. I'm, you know, I'm 60 years old. I've heard about hydrogen since I was a kid. 
And it's a very difficult molecule. It, yes, it is. Mm. It, you know, it, once you have it, is it useful? Yeah, and you can run it through a fuel cell. I haven't seen any fuel cells around lately. Um, and, and I don't expect to see any around in, in the near term in my average environment. Um, and, and the other problem with hydrogen is just that it's a very difficult molecule to tank and to handle it, you know, because hydrogen embrittlement of, you know, of, of pipelines, you know, Southern California gas announced they're doing some hydrogen thing and they had a press conference and I asked them, well, so how much hydrogen can you run in your natural gas network? And they said, well, we don't really know. Mm. Okay. Well, <laughs> why, why are you hyping it up so much? Yeah. And so, Anyway, so yeah, I, I, to me, it's again, it goes goes back to the issues of reliability, resilience, and having resilient networks. And I think that that gas network is, and the propane network, and the the the, the ability to have combustion in the home and commercial settings, these are things that that add to resilience and reliability. Take them away, you reduce resilience and reliability. Yeah. It's really good, and, and I'm learning as I'm as I'm speaking to you here. I guess the question that I've got is: so you're fuel, you're for a diversity of of energy sources. What do you think the key is to lower, lowering our carbon footprint and keeping people safe along the way? Well, again, I think nuclear has to be a bigger part of the fuel mix. I mean, if we're serious about this, I mean, and and and, and I think in many ways we're just not. I mean, as a society, we're not. And you know, the the dangers of nuclear have been hyped to the to the to the skies by groups like the Sierra Club, by the Natural Resources Defense Council, by Riverkeeper, by, you know, I'm not afraid to name names. These are the environmental groups who are denying the reality that nuclear provides the best low-carbon, zero-carbon alternative. Small footprints, very small footprints, can operate on the existing transmission grid, um, and it is very safe and, and, and affordable. So the reality is that when countries or, or places shut down nuclear plants, they're replaced by gas-fired plants, and that means more CO2 in the atmosphere. So, you know, I, as I think about it, and, I, you know, especially after the blackouts in February, my view is climate change is climate change a concern. Yes, it is a concern. No doubt about it. It's not the only concern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Well, Robert, this has been amazing. Uh, you know, for anybody that is that is listening to this, you have got to check out the Power Hungry podcast. I'm going to recommend that the episode you start with is your episode from March 7th with John Harple, and it's about Texas blackouts and why natural gas is a strategic fuel. For me, I learned a ton, and I'm going back and listening to more and more now. Where else is it that people can find you? Well, I'm uh, I'm ubiquitous. You can't get away from me on the Google. Um, I'm on robertbryce.com. That's my website. Uh, my Twitter handle is at PowerHungry, P-W-R Hungry, uh, for my new film, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, on Twitter, at Juice for All. Um, the website is JuiceTheMovie.com, um, and then uh, you can look for me on Forbes um, and, uh, oh, I don't know, a few other places as well. How's that, Tim? Is that enough? It's amazing, and I'm going to link to all this in the show notes, so you guys, you guys can go there, and, and you're going to be able to get more of Robert than you can handle. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, man. We appreciate the work you're doing. <laughs> Join, join my wife and kids. There's more they can handle. So yeah. Uh, well, this has been fun, Tim, and I'm you know I'm I'm appreciate the invite, and you know I'm passionate about these issues, and I think that you know having fuel diversity and having combustion is important. It's important to us as humans. It's important for resilience, reliability, and just basic comfort. Yeah. Well, it's clear you're an expert, man, and you're doing work that matters. Thanks for being here. Thanks a lot, Tim. 
Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Robert Bryce. He's somebody that I feel honored to talk to. I mean, when you look at his pedigree, I mean, who has he not written for? Like the New York Times, Forbes. I mean, go down the list. He's an author of multiple books and he has like full-blown documentaries out. This is somebody that takes this issue very, very seriously. And I, I just... I think it's powerful. He's someone that we need to be paying attention to because he he really knows what's going on. A couple things I thought about in the conversation. One is this concept of energy poverty. This is a really big deal. Um, if 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 you you know are are someone who is relatively well off, which I'd imagine most of the people listening to this podcast are, it can be difficult to to think about what it was like to like literally not be able to pay your bills. But the truth is that there are people all over the country that struggle with this. And and whenever groups and organizations talk about, oh, electrification, we're going to get rid of natural gas, we're going to go fully renewable, that comes with a price. And it's actually the most vulnerable people in our communities who are affected by it. And so this idea of like clean energy is is one thing, and it's, it's very important. Like I'm not, I'm not underscoring how important that is, but we also have to be able to take care of people who who don't have the same means as everybody else. And I think that that Robert did a really good job of talking about the way that energy poverty works and, and the dire straits that some folks are in. Now, one thing that he talked about too that I think is very important is this idea of having a backup. And, and you don't hear about this in a lot of conversations when people talk about how we need to electrify things. It's like, well, what happens when the power goes out? I mean, Every single one of us knows what a power outage is like. We deal with it, you know, on a, a regular or somewhat regular basis. And and when you fully electric electrify things, um, you you don't have anything when when the power goes out. And I like that he brought up this quote by Winston Churchill saying, "Safety and certainty lie in variety, and variety alone." That's a really big deal. So like when you're having conversations with legislators about uh, banning natural gas or, or moving fully into quote unquote renewables, you have to talk about what do you do when there's a power outage? What do you do when there's a situation like happened, like what happened in Texas earlier this winter and the wind is not blowing or the sun is not out, but people need power now. This is a big deal. Like even with current battery technology, you only get upwards of like six hours of of that electricity that's generated. You, you got to use it right away. Natural gas, I believe, is part of the strategic mix because it can actually be turned on when you need it. It can be ramped up when you need it. And it's something that you know, compared to a lot of alternatives is is like relatively low in, in carbon output. And there's all kinds of technologies that are being explored to, to lower the carbon output of natural gas anyway. So I, I think that this conversation is important and it, it gives us just perspective as to the gravity of this issue, but also how we need to come along and, and be an advocate. You know, he talked about if you're going to actually join this fight, like pack a lunch, it's going to take some time. And I think that that's the key. Like I, I look at I look at Robert's body of work and he's been talking about, you know, power and energy and, and how it works for years and years and years. But in, in my opinion, he is one of the few people I've seen that that a truly knows enough 
to be an authority. Like, he, I mean, just listening to him in this, like he truly knows enough to be an authority. But also, like, I think he looks at it very objectively, where in, in one of his past articles, I've read him say he's like, he's like, look, like, like, I'm for electrification in the sense that, like, we do need to lower our carbon output and provide, like, amazing power for everybody. But he says, I'm pro-human. And because I'm pro-human, that means that, like, we can't take these, like, black and white solutions that alienate power sources that are reliable and literally keep people alive. So I think he's somebody that has a very balanced and very practical perspective. When you get into these conversations, it's easy to to make it go in a political direction where like a message one way or the other will appease voters. But I I love that he is just saying like, look, like let's take care of people and keep them safe and then work together on finding the cleanest sources of energy. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. My encouragement to you is that you go and read Robert Bryce's work in Forbes. We're actually going to be publishing one of his prior articles in next month's issue of the Firetime magazine. He was gracious enough to give us permission to do that. And make sure to subscribe to the Power Hungry podcast. I guarantee you're going to listen to an episode and think, my goodness, I don't know anything about this issue. And and it's true. Like we, we know a very small part of one side of an argument. And so I would encourage you to just continue to broaden your perspectives and listen to voices like Robert to gain a more holistic understanding of what's going on. I would argue that that actually strengthens our position and and what we're fighting for. Now, if this podcast has been a blessing for you and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website patreon.com slash it's fire time. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash it's fire time. We do not take this lightly and, and, and I'll tell you, like I feel an immense burden to make sure that this podcast is continuing to deliver value season after season. But what's amazing is that your contributions allow us to have a, a small budget, but a budget nonetheless to, to outsource some of the administrative duties of this podcast so that we can focus on keeping the content as high quality as possible. Now, our last episode of this season is coming up very, very soon, and it's going to be a Q&A episode. If you have any questions that came up in my conversation with Robert today or have, have been an issue for you going through you know, just the supply shortages that we've, that we've had this season, and if you want to get those questions answered, you can go to itsfiretime.com slash ask, and you can put in your question, and we will do our absolute best to answer it in the Q&A episode. Now, I know that it feels like the season never stopped. I mean, it, it kind of didn't. Like, we still have a lot of demand and we we don't have many products that are available. Uh, I truly believe that's actually only going to get worse. I think that right now is the best supply we're going to have for probably eight, nine months. I, I, I hope that's not true, but that's that's what I'm guessing. And it can be hard. But I want you to know that what you're doing matters. As I've been spending more time with dealers and starting to travel more, I, I am I, people are feeling tired, and and I know what that's like. But my hope for you is that you can continue to persevere, and that this podcast and and the relationship that you have with other like-minded dealers is going to be what gives you strength to keep going. So I hope you guys have an amazing rest of the week, and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by InBloom out of Portland, Oregon. 
We thank you for listening to the Fire Time Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time.